From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Preventing wildfires, adapting to climate change, and protecting public land. It's all in a day's work for Colorado's new Climate Conservation Corps. We'll explore how it'll work and how it could be a model for the rest of the nation. Then the Attorney General's office found the Aurora Police Department routinely violated state and federal law with racist policing and inappropriate use of force. We heard loudly and clearly from the citizens of Aurora that they were really concerned about their police department. We analyzed it intensively over the last three years. The quantitative analysis, as well as the qualitative, is very compelling that there is a pattern and practice of civil rights violations. Plus, a new idea to create attainable housing in rural parts of the state. And how is that different from affordable housing? I hope that you get news that tells you, hey, this is what my elected representative is doing in D.C. and I needed to know that. Or, wow, that's interesting. (laughs) I didn't know that my elected representative was doing this. Public affairs reporter Caitlin Kim, based in Washington, D.C. You send them there to represent your district or the state of Colorado, and ultimately you. What are they doing in your name? I think this is all information you need to know, and I hope my reporting helps provide some of that. Listen for the work of the CPR Newsroom every day here on CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Avery Lill. Protect public land, mitigate the risk of wildfires, and help marginalized communities adapt to the effects of climate change. Just some of the issues a new statewide climate conservation corps will tackle. And there are plans to take the program national. Lieutenant Governor Diane Primavera announced the creation of the state program. Lieutenant Governor, welcome. Thank you, Avery. Scott Segerstrom is the executive director of the Colorado Youth Corps Association. Hi, Scott. Hi, thanks for having me. And to talk about how this intersects with a national youth climate corps, Colorado Congressman Jonah Goose joins us. Thank you for your time, Congressman. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having us. Congressman, we'll talk about the national effort in just a moment. But first, you've been working for more than a year to build a climate corps in partnership with the state. Talk about the significance of this program as a starting point. Well, we couldn't be more excited and grateful for uh, Lieutenant Governor Primavera and Governor Polis's leadership in instituting uh, the Colorado Climate Corps, really a first of its kind in the nation. And as you said, we're working very hard at the federal level to emulate this program and to to scale it up so that uh, similar programs can uh, be implemented in states across our country. Uh, We know that the climate crisis is an existential one, and it is going to take an all-hands-on-deck approach in terms of addressing wildfire resiliency, mitigation, uh, watershed protection, and so many other important tasks, in particular on our public lands. And that's why this program is so incredibly important. And as I've said to others, the best way I can make the case to my colleagues in Washington is to show them that the program has been successful here locally. And I think that that certainly has been the case here. Lieutenant Governor, the Governor's Commission on Community Service has committed about $1.7 million to fund the Colorado Community Climate Corps. When you look at that all-hands-on-deck approach that Congressman Nagus mentioned, what do you prioritize first? Well, you know, I think uh, this initial commitment of Serve Colorado to fund the Colorado Climate Corps is uh, really exciting. And I think, uh, you know, of course, we've uh, prioritized uh, having an effect on climate change that all of us are feeling across our state, especially in marginalized communities. So uh, the AmeriCorps program will provide the boots on the ground that we need uh, to make a difference. 
Um, they're going to do several things. Um, they're going to improve the overall health and resiliency of public lands while uh, helping to mitigate the threat of future wildfires and floods. Uh, they're also going to increase public awareness of climate change and its impact, uh, provide resources and education to marginalized communities that are experiencing the effects of climate change, including education of health impacts of climate change and resources to mitigate those impacts. And then they're going to also conduct energy and water weatherization and retrofitting in low-income households uh, to help them conserve resources, lower their utility bills, and decrease the need for um, uh, re for burning fossil fuels that, uh, as we know, contribute to climate change. Obviously a lot involved there. Scott, this program, it enlists 240 AmeriCorps members in 55 counties across Colorado. What will their work look like? It will, as the Lieutenant Governor just alluded to, it is going to be a whole range of life-saving interventions. We are going to have core members who we train to be wildland firefighters who are going to be doing tree thinning. So they will be reducing, uh, they'll be increasing canopy space. Uh, they will be uh, bringing our forests back to health. We'll have members that are going into low-income uh, residences to install energy and water efficiency measures uh, that will both lower uh, the utility bills to help create a path to economic independence, uh, while also reducing carbon footprint, preserving water. Uh, and we'll have members that go out into the community. They're going to be working with uh, communities across Colorado on creating uh, climate change action plans, uh, increasing resiliency, uh, working with communities instead of doing things to them. So uh, there's a, a really diverse set of experiences uh, that our members are going to benefit from, uh, and it's going to be a transformational experience for them. Scott, you used the phrase life-saving interventions. Um, we heard from the lieutenant governor that this is something, climate change, the effects of it particularly affect marginalized communities. What kinds of things are these AmeriCorps members going to be doing to brace low-income communities in the face of climate change? It's a really good question, and it's one of the most important missions and impacts of the program. Marginalized and disinvested communities uh, are often left behind. When we see interventions and when we see communities uh, begin to stand up, uh, some of those communities get left behind for reasons like um, access to health care uh, is not as readily accessible, um, that um, we see uh, resources are, are not provided as quickly due to a lack of infrastructure. Um, uh, and so we're going to have members do things like um, install LED light bulbs, high efficiency toilets, programmable thermostats uh, in, um, in low-income residences. So you get that twofold impact where those communities will lessen their carbon footprint uh, while also being able to save money on their energy bills. Um, we're also going to take an educational approach so that we can fill that knowledge gap uh, from more privileged communities uh, to communities that uh, are, are facing an education gap so that they're more empowered to determine their own future uh, and come up with their own action plans that are, that are the right fit for them. So a really inspirational outcome from Colorado Climate Corps will be seeing communities become empowered uh, to change their own destiny. Congressman, what do you say to criticism that this program takes eager young people out of the job market at a time when the economy is hurting for laborers? Well, I disagree. Uh, obviously, we're all very concerned about the economic disruption uh, that our country has experienced uh, over the course of the last year uh, due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, we're taking steps at the federal level to ensure uh, that folks 
uh, have the resources that they need uh, to survive during the course of the pandemic. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, there's certainly no doubt uh, labor shortages in a variety of different sectors, but I would say uh, that there is also an incredible shortage uh, of workers to do this important work on our public lands. When you think about the fact that so many of our residents here in Colorado live uh, in the WUI uh, and ultimately uh, face real threats from the risk of wildfires, megafires like the two largest wildfires that our state experienced just last year, both of which happened in my district, there is simply no time to waste. And there are many uh, young, eager uh, folks who would like to work on these projects if given the opportunity, which is precisely why we believe this Climate Conservation Corps can meet the moment and provide them with the with that ability. Scott, I'd love to get your take on this economic impact as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, economic expansion does not mitigate wildfires, floods, or mudslides. Uh, while we are grateful for uh, an economy that continues to grow, uh, it stands separate, as as the congressman alluded to, from natural disasters. Um, when you're coughing on your way to a job interview, something is wrong. Um, so those two things live in in separate silos. And the second piece I would highlight to to you know, that potential uh, criticism is that Colorado Climate Corps is going to do so much more than provide a pathway to employment. It creates valuable personal development in these in these young people. Uh, our members that successfully complete will earn a Siegel Education Award, and that's a voucher that they can use to reduce student loan debt or to pay for future tuition. So there are a, a myriad of benefits uh, beyond simply a pathway to a job. And so while we're really grateful to see the economy grow, uh, this program is going to provide some also really meaningful personal and professional development for these young people uh, that goes beyond uh, just their economic status. Lucy, yeah, I'd like to add, oh, go ahead. Like to add that, uh, you know, they also learn leadership skills and you know, service is at the heart of AmeriCorps, and it, as Scott said, it provides many opportunities for individuals uh, to serve their communities, uh, to learn, you know, really helpful skills that they will use on future jobs. And I can tell you that AmeriCorps members and AmeriCorps services near and dear to my heart. And oftentimes, as an, as an employer myself, if I see two candidates that are equal uh, in skills and I can't decide between the two of them, I'll oftentimes give the AmeriCorps member the edge. Lieutenant Governor, we've mentioned several times protecting public lands as a part of this. What does protecting public lands look like in this context? Well, it looks like, you know, as, as Scott mentioned, and as, as we've talked about, you know, mitigating forest fires, taking out some of the fuel from the forest that, you know, can catch on fires or can catch on fire. Um, the AmeriCorps uh, program that we're talking about will actually be in 55 counties across the state. So, uh, it will impact, uh, you know, almost all the counties in Colorado. And, you know, as we mentioned, in addition to in mitigating the fuel that's in the forest that from the dead trees and things like that, it'll it'll help us uh, with cleaner water. Um, it'll help us with uh, educating people about uh, the importance of climate change and the importance of uh, moving towards, uh, you know, the, the goal of 100% renewable energy uh, by 2040, which is what uh, Governor Polis and I, um, our goal is. Congressman, you're trying to secure funding for a federal climate core program through President Joe Biden's ambitious infrastructure plan. How do you convince colleagues who are on the fence that this program is a necessary part of infrastructure? Well, I chair the public lands subcommittee in the United States House of Representatives and, and through that capacity have worked 
to try to better educate my colleagues about the, the scale of the crisis that we face in the Rocky Mountain West and in the Western United States with respect to wildfires and intense flash flooding as a result thereof. And uh, I would tell you that I think that we're making a compelling case that uh, folks uh, uh, in my uh, uh, in my caucus and the Democratic caucus in the Congress understand the need to make this type of investment. I think they recognize the gravity of the situation. Several of them have had the opportunity to come to Colorado uh, through various field hearings that we've held and, and be able to see firsthand the devastation from some of the wildfires. As you know, we just lost uh, tragically three people in our community uh, just uh, four weeks ago uh, due to intense splash flooding over uh, near the Cameron Peak burn scar up in uh, northern Larimer County. And it's just another example of why this is so urgent in terms of scaling up the work that the Colorado Climate Corps is doing. And, uh, and as I said, also uh, doing this nationwide. The reality is, while uh, I certainly have an institutional bias towards the work that will be done in our public lands and our national forests, uh, as Scott mentioned, the Climate Conservation Corps will apply to rural, suburban, and urban America alike. There are many projects in urban America uh, and in rural America that are also in need of development, mm. and uh, the Conservation Corps will be poised to take that on. I want to thank you all so much for joining us today. Scott Sagerstrom is Executive Director of the Colorado Youth Corps. Diane Primavera is the Lieutenant Governor, and Jonah Goose is the Democratic Congressman representing Boulder. Colorado Attorney General Phil Weiser issued a scathing review of the Aurora Police and Fire Departments Wednesday. He said they have a pattern and practice of unlawful conduct and use of excessive force, racially biased policing, and improper administration of the drug ketamine. The investigation by Weiser's office was prompted largely by the death of Elijah McLean after a police stop in Aurora two years ago. The probe is the first of its kind under a new state law that gives the attorney general power to investigate police departments. Aurora now has 60 days to reach an agreement called a consent decree on reforms. I'm joined by Attorney General Phil Weiser. Welcome. Great to be with you. Let's talk first about the use of force. Of course, this investigation began after public protests of Elijah McLean's death. What other cases led the investigators to find a pattern of excessive force? When Colorado's legislature passed a special law, Senate Bill 2217, we had this authority never before in the history of Colorado to investigate pattern and practice of civil rights violations. And we heard loudly and clearly from the citizens of Aurora that they were really concerned about their police department and its concern that's rooted in history. We analyzed it intensively over the last three years both qualitatively as well as quantitatively. And people can look for themselves. The quantitative analysis as well as the qualitative is very compelling that there is a pattern and practice of civil rights violations with regard to racial discrimination, with regard to excessive force, and failure to follow certain record-keeping requirements. The allegation of racially biased policing found that people of color, especially black people, were much more likely to be arrested and to have force used on them more than white people. Can you cite the numbers that stood out to you most? So I don't have the report right in front of me, but when you look at the data, the percentage of African-Americans likely to be arrested and to suffer use of force were way out of bounds with their proportion of the population. And it really begged the question of what's going on here? Why is this happening? We also know the percentage of the police force is not consistent with the community in terms of its demographics. And so that's a real disconnect, a police force that isn't as diverse as the community and a treatment of diverse community members 
that is different than it is for white individuals. We didn't only have the quantitative data telling that story. We heard and we saw episodes that reinforced those concerns. And when you talk about the uh, police force itself, that it doesn't reflect the demographics of the community, tell me a little bit more about why that is and what the investigators found. In Aurora, the hiring, and this also applies to all sorts of disciplinary actions, are overseen by a civil service commission. One of the concerns we noted is that looking at the two qualified people, a white person and a black person, the white person was more likely to be hired given the Aurora hiring processes. And that's a problem that we believe is part of a cultural challenge that we want to see turned around. We want to see a more inclusive police department. We want to see a police department which is worthy of trust and is trusted. And there's work to do on that. And the work involves how do we better address these sorts of discriminatory impacts That's something that we think hiring is going to be a piece of the equation, as well as training, as well as discipline, because one of the concerns we noted also is that the Civil Service Commission overturned certain disciplinary actions against police officers who'd engaged in misconduct. And going back to that use of force policy, the investigators drew an interesting distinction in the department's use of force policy. They said the APD decisions about when to use force are based on what's allowed under, quoting here, the outer limits of the law, rather than, again, quoting, what force is necessary. From a practical standpoint, for an officer and a person that they're interacting with, what is the difference? The Constitution has a boundary on when is force permitted, when is deadly force permitted. That boundary is meant to be the ceiling. It's not meant to be the floor. It's not meant to be best practice. Best practice is you only use force when you truly need to because there's a threatening situation. When an officer quickly escalates a situation, turns it into a violent confrontation, and the same situation could have been handled differently, that's a missed opportunity, and it's potentially a tragedy depending on where it goes. So one of the goals we have is how do we think about, how do we better develop what we might call ethical decision-making. When you enter into a situation, how do you keep your head and how do you ask, do I need to use force here? If so, how much? How can I avoid using excessive force? We believe better guidance, better training, and a better culture can be developed in Aurora, and we want to see a consent decree that will do just that. Let's talk a little bit more about that culture, because the report found that the culture is the reason behind so many of the outcomes. What is the culture at the Aurora Police Department? So let's stick with the discussion we had about use of force. After force is used, one can imagine a couple different mindsets. One mindset is, why did this happen? Was it avoidable? What do we learn from it? Another mindset is, how do we look basically past it? How do we avoid asking hard questions. And our conclusions, when you look at how the Aurora Police Department operates with its use of force review, is it isn't really dedicated to a culture of constant improvement, to a learning culture. We want to see Aurora move towards that learning culture, that improvement mindset, which means asking those important questions, learning from experience, and seeking to elevate practice. Do you anticipate more investigations with other departments that could have similar patterns? When the Colorado General Assembly gave us this authority, it enables us to investigate and, if facts so warrant, take action like we are with respect to any governmental agency here in Colorado with a pattern or practice of civil rights violations. 
when we get complaints from the public, we're going to investigate them. We'll take seriously concerns. And in the future, we have now a precedent we're establishing today that we'll be able to follow. What do you say to people who say that we've known about APD's problems for a long time, they haven't gotten better? Why will this change anything? This is the first time that we have a formal law administered by our attorney general's office to result in a consent decree with enforceable requirements. We believe that level of focus and commitment can be a difference maker. We also are seeing a high level of cooperation and a high level commitment from Aurora and from its leaders in the police department, the fire department, the city manager to make this time different and to make lasting change. You mentioned the fire department. We should talk about the Aurora Fire Rescue's role here. That part of the investigation focused specifically on the use of sedative ketamine. The drug was administered to Elijah McLean. Tell me about what pattern and practice the investigation found there. We looked at over 20 cases of the administration of ketamine. And what we found was it was administered in a way that was beyond the legal requirements, beyond sound medical treatment, and was a threat to the civil rights and health and safety of the people of Aurora. Aurora has stopped using ketamine in this fashion. Nonetheless, we outlined certain requirements, certain expectations, that if they were to start using it again, we want to see implemented. We'll work to make that a part of a consent decree as well. So the police chief who led the department when Elijah McClain died has retired. A new chief, Vanessa Wilson, has instituted some new policies. What's the department doing right at this point? We're really encouraged that the department has been working to find ways to respond to a level of community concern that, of course, sparked the investigation that we did. For example, after there was a report done about how to respond to mental health issues, which is a concern that we note in the report as well, Aurora is now introducing a co-responder program where trained mental health professionals can be there to respond to individuals with mental health concerns. That's a step forward. There are a number of other step forwards that we've seen under the police chief's leadership. We believe her commitment to a consent decree is part and parcel of those other efforts. This is going to be an ongoing project of how we help transform a culture from one where we have the concerns that we articulated to one where it could be a model police department. That's Colorado Attorney General Phil Weiser. He issued a report Wednesday on the use of excessive force and racist policing in the Aurora Police Department. Let's flesh out a little more detail on the attorney general's investigation that found racial bias. Black people make up less than 17% of Aurora's population. Between 2015 and 2019, police department data showed that almost 40% of the people arrested were black and that 46% of the use of force incidents involved black people. When we come back, Weiser addresses concerns from cops on the street. I'm Avery Lill. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Francie Swidler, and I donated my car to Colorado Public Radio. It was a 2004 Nissan Pathfinder. It was a really cool car at a certain period in time, and it has seen some things. So it was time for the car to get off the street anyway, and I knew that it would make me feel okay about saying goodbye. It's easy to donate your car at CPR.org. 
It's Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Avery Lill. We're speaking with Colorado Attorney General Phil Weiser. On Wednesday, he released the results of an investigation into excessive force and racially biased policing in Aurora. I also want to talk about concerns that investigators heard from cops on the street. Some of them said that the more time they spend thinking about the specifics of the policy, when to use force, how much to use, the more danger they'd be in. What's your response? We strongly believe that effective training based on best practice will keep everybody safer. When a situation gets escalated and it doesn't have to get escalated, both the officer and the individual who could be in custody are at greater risk of being injured or even dying. Those techniques are being used elsewhere. We've seen different departments that have done very effective training to avoid undue escalation as opposed to those that don't have that training. And we see a lot more use of force, more officer-involved shootings. We believe with a thorough commitment from the top, we can help police officers be more safe, and we can help make sure that citizens of Aurora will be more safe. This is not a trade-off. We've seen this done elsewhere. It can be done in Aurora. Can you give me a few of the most important reforms that the Aurora Police Department needs to make? So we've talked about a lot of these issues uh, over the course of our conversation. One that obviously stands out is how do we address the concern about excessive force, particularly excessive force that is used more on people of color? That's an area that's going to be an area of focus. A second concern is more discriminatory focus on people of color being the subject of policing at a rate that is not commensurate with the population. Those reforms can be helped by training. They can help by hiring. They can be helped by discipline. It's going to be a multi-pound approach. We also have talked a bit about record keeping, where under the law, there's transparency requirements that haven't been met. We need those to be met appropriately. We believe that as you look at those, you do paint a larger picture about how you can change the culture of Aurora, a culture that we believe is ripe for reform and improvement. And that's the goal of consent decree. And that's what we're going to work with Aurora to get done. Before you go, I wonder if you could share what did you find most troubling in the report? What I have found most troubling in the report, and it's something I've heard from others, is community members who don't have faith in their law enforcement operating fairly. When people of color believe they're being treated unfairly, overly policed, subject to excessive force, that undermines our commitment to all live under the rule of law and equal justice under law. Having a police force that is improved, that is elevated, that builds confidence in its ability to serve everybody is going to be a big benefit to Aurora. And that's the true north for this project. And the peoples whose concerns we heard, and I've heard, and the facts that underlie and demonstrate those concerns are going to motivate us in that work going forward. Attorney General, I want to thank you so much for joining us. It's always a pleasure. Attorney General Phil Weiser released a report Wednesday on what he calls a pattern and practice of unlawful behavior in the Aurora Police and Fire Departments. CPR Justice reporter Allison Sherry spoke with Elijah McLean's mother, Shanine, who says the investigation finally vindicates her. My perfect outcome would be for there to be no more bad police officers and no more bad firefighters and paramedics um, so that everybody that lives in Aurora, Colorado and in Colorado period has um, their best chance possible to live a good life. 
Aurora Police Chief Vanessa Wilson released a statement saying it was a very tough day for her department, but she acknowledged changes need to be made and she's going to work on those changes. But she also said that she won't, quote, broad brush the agency or discount the professionalism and integrity that individual officers bring to the community. Read much more about the report and the response to it at CPR.org. There is a world of opportunity in southeast Colorado with growing businesses like hemp farms in Baca County and a bulk mail sorting center in Grenada. And in part because of the pandemic and the corresponding rise in telecommuting, there are also people anxious to move or perhaps return to the area. Where those people will live, however, is a question that has vexed community leaders, facing depleted inventories and stagnant construction. But one possible solution is close at hand. Here to explain is Stephanie Gonzalez. She is the executive director of Southeast Colorado Enterprise Development Incorporated. Stephanie, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Housing in rural communities throughout Colorado has been front and center of late. That concern reached Washington, D.C., where Representative Ken Buck recently sent a letter to President Biden. He asked him not to overlook that part of the population here in the state. Quote, rural America does not face economic hardship due to a lack of hard work or opportunities, Buck said, but rather due to inadequate housing. Representative Buck also cited a 2021 study that said the housing supply in rural areas had fallen 44 percent year over year. Stephanie, you work with six county area in southeast Colorado. Are the numbers close to the figures cited by Representative Buck? Absolutely. Any community that you visit um, has an issue of where do you put people if they need to come here to work or to live, uh, just in general, just to live. Um, We have had a lack of housing supply, adequate housing supply, which has led to out-migration. If you can't put people in houses, how can you expect them to work here? So we in any community, any county that you come to in the Southeast Colorado area, their big cry is, we need housing. Workforce housing, attainable, affordable, uh, just a range of housing. So there's that out-migration. There are also people who want to return to the area. I think your sister is returned and is telecommuting to her job on the front range. Tell me more about the effect on the economy if people can't find housing. So, as you know, you can't attract a business if they don't have a place to put their workforce. And while we have um, people who are here to fill those needs for um, workforce, we also have people trying to relocate back to the area. Telecommuting has, has made a really big difference. Um, as we know, in the pandemic year, a lot of people were able to work from home. And there has been so much interest in, well, if I can work from home now, how do I get back into an area where I can raise kids, um, they can attend small schools, um, just in general, just come back to the area. So it's been an interesting um, year with what has happened and how that has come to the forefront. We were actually seeing uh, an influx of people who are just looking to get back to the area. And we should also mention that this housing shortage, it also affects teachers and healthcare workers and people in those sorts of professions as well. Absolutely. We have a lot of travel nursing because there's, there is uh, 
need for nurses, um, doctors. We have to have specialists who come from the, out of the area. They don't always um, reside in our communities. They come and stay. There's, there is not that availability of housing for those types of workers as well. Um, it, it's just a need that if you talk to uh, medical providers, they need to, a place for their for their workforce that do come to the area, even if it, if it's on a you know thirteen week period for a travel nurse. Um, that availability is just not there. Um, we consistently hear the need from schools for teacher housing. It, it's not how can you attract teachers that want to stay and bring their children to the schools if you don't have uh, places to put them? It's hard to retain them. So, of course, our schools are very interested in, in the development of this housing and having it available for their workforce. So let's talk about where you come in. What is the approach that you're taking? So through the process of the comprehensive economic development strategies that we are working through with um, a partner agency, the Southern Colorado Economic Development District, we approached the counties and municipalities for their participation in a project that would build between 60 and 70 homes um, spread out throughout the counties we have identified nine communities that are willing to participate. And that might look like uh, duplexes in one or single family or a combination of two of the, the both of them. This would enable us to, um, in those communities, spark the market and try to bring those uh, uh, comps into the area so that we can get housing built. We're hoping with this project that on the heels of completing this project that we will have um, more interest in development from um, all developers, whether that they be from out of the area or local developers. So we are now in the stage of trying to um, identify that developer. We've had two uh, developers who have submitted uh, letters of interest and we are moving forward. And how many homes are we talking about here? So it would be between 60 and 70 units. And um, they are based on pre-sales. So if we don't sell them, this is not a spec development uh, project. We are going to aggressively market to um, the area. And it may be something that um, businesses say, well, I would like that for rental. So maybe I want duplexes. So they would have a unit of duplexes that are available for their workforce. It's just um, whatever the community uh, is wanting to prioritize. So single family is is our goal. However, we're not precluding the option to have rental, business rentals. So a couple of things here. One is that distinction that you're making between um, these homes. They're not considered affordable housing. They're attainable housing. What is the difference and how much will these homes cost? So our target is to sell them between $150,000 and $199,000. Our market demand study that um, we did years ago in 2017 shows that we have a need for not only the affordable but 
for attainable. So those are 80% AMI to 120% AMI. And this would give people who um, don't necessarily hit that uh, lower um, criteria of, you know, you can't you can't apply for the the affordable housing, which is below 80% AMI, it would help to- So it's an income cap housing. Right, there's not that cap. So we're really excited because we have received our market demand study, which has for the current project, which has supported what we are looking to to do for the 150,000 to 199,000. And there's no income cap for this attainable housing. Are you worried that that could skew the market at all? Not at all. Not at all. We are targeting people who are part of the workforce, and we are looking at trying not to exclude people who can. You know, there may be there may be people. If you look at our AMIs, based on you know uh, what is the poverty level, we are still well below what the average is for the state. So we are we are doing our homework in in trying to make sure that you know people are not um, people are not excluded that are at the eighty percent AMI at that lower level, but it is available for those who you know are above that. So part of this stems from the American Rescue Plan Act that was created to help people deal with the economic impact of the pandemic. Um, Just briefly tell me a little bit more about that. So the American Rescue Plan Act has a component that is uh, to address infrastructure and housing is identified as an eligible use for that money. And with that, each allocation that came to counties and, and municipalities we approached the counties and municipalities for their participation in taking care of those, um, what we term as broccoli cost, right? So, um, you know, broccoli's um, good for you. We don't, not everybody likes it, but you have to have it. So we are taking care of those pre-development costs, you know, surveying the architect's fee, the um, even if it means we have to purchase land and we've um, approached all of these participating counties and municipalities and they were collaborative and very excited at the thought of being able to come in and do something that could help their communities to get this uh, much needed housing in place. So we've uh, engaged them they are all involved and with the budget that we have are able to take care of those pre-development costs so that the developer comes in and what he's doing is just building up. In about the 30 seconds we have left, how soon do you hope to start building? Our intention is very, um, it's, it's, we're very aggressive. We're, in, we're intending to have something going by the end of March, beginning of April. And at this point, we are on target. Stephanie, I want to thank you so much for your time. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Stephanie Gonzalez is the executive director of Southeast Colorado Enterprise Development Incorporated. She joined us to discuss an attainable housing project in the region. Groundbreaking on 70 houses is expected this spring. 
Post-traumatic stress disorder rocked Bailey Francisco's world, but in high school, he didn't know how to talk about it. So he made a film as part of the Colorado Springs-based Youth Documentary Academy. Francisco's work is featured in the new series Our Time, which premieres tonight at 7 on Rocky Mountain PBS. I spoke with Francisco in April after he won an award for his documentary, After War. A couple of years ago, my family was torn apart due to PTSD and traumatic brain injuries that my dad suffered while in the military. It was a really rough time, but as I got older, I realized that it's not really talked about. And uh, I just, I don't, want, I don't want people to feel alone like I did. I just want to get my story out. Bailey, were you nervous to tell your family's story? No, I was incredibly nervous. I mean, I, I talked about it, you know, with my mom a lot. You know, we, we were very open about that. But it was kind of like our secret is just kind of like a dark cloud looming over our family that, you know, just we didn't want to talk about publicly. And I, I was incredibly nervous to tell my story. I wanted to make a film about something else, but plans fell through. And, you know, I was kind of forced to make this story. But before the first showing... I was petrified. What did compel you to tell this story, even though it was one that obviously was really hard to share? Well, I, I knew that it was an important story to tell because, you know, growing up in a military community, at least five out of 10 kids, don't quote me on that statistic, but, you know, a lot of kids are suffering from the same problem. It's not, you know, the exact same problem. How was it to interview your mom and your dad about some really painful memories with a camera? Yeah, it was very, very scary to interview my dad because I, you know, I was young and I was nervous about how he would react if he knew that this was the story that I decided to tell. And, you know, he drove me to and from the YDA classes every single day, every single class. And he did not know what the movie I was making was about. So when I interviewed him, it was kind of Tom Shepard, the founder of Youth Documentary Academy. He, you know, was kind of egging me on and told me, like, Bailey, we have to do this. We have to do this. And um, interviewing my, my dad was probably the most stressful moment in making that film. But I'm happy that I did it. And interviewing my mom was basically the exact opposite because we, you know, we talked about this a lot. You know, my mom was very, very, you know, supportive of my emotions if I was feeling, you know, upset or angry. Just a little bit of context. Bailey, your dad was in the military, and he developed severe post-traumatic stress disorder. He was deployed a number of places. He saw a lot of violence. He also suffered brain injury and spine injury. He tried to kill himself on one of those deployments and was sent home. You were just 12 years old, and he became violent toward you. He came home. You were in the kitchen. And I heard a scuffle, and he had attacked you. And he was holding you over the kitchen sink, and he was strangling you. He had, he had a knife to my neck, and he was saying, like, stupid stuff. Like, you, you know, I wouldn't hurt you. I love you. You're my son. Stuff like that. But he had a knife to my neck. He's like, do you trust me? And I, I didn't know what to say. So I was, I was crying. And my mom came in, and she's like, you know, get off of him. Bailey, that seems like such a difficult memory to relive. How was it to share your story for your own documentary? Um, it was easier filming that than it was, you know, initially showing it to people. And it's, yeah, it's so crazy, crazy hearing it back. 
telling my story, you know, Tom really created a community of trust in the Youth Documentary Academy. Like we would talk about our emotions and, you know, kind of, it became like a very, very open community. Like we were not afraid to talk about anything. And Tom made that interview very comfortable. It was almost just like I was speaking, you know, to myself because we had the camera flipped back. So, you know, I was able to kind of look at myself while filming it and it was very easy, but showing the film, that's when I was nervous because I was like, oh my gosh, like it's one thing to just speak in an empty room about how I feel, but showing people that video, that's a little scary. Bailey, you said in your film that you don't want other people to feel alone like you did. Did making your film help you feel less alone? Wow. Um, (laughs) Yeah, no, it definitely, definitely did. It made me realize that my story wasn't just my story you know it's like a lot of communities share this story and like in my community it was a military community so a lot of people were experiencing the same thing I did and showing my film I showed it to some of my friends you know that I knew since I was in third grade maybe and I showed them my film and they would text me and say like wow I'm going through the exact same thing at home like why didn't we talk about this So I feel like it definitely gave me a sense of community, you know, showed me that I wasn't alone. It really took away some stigma to bring that into the open. Um, You mentioned that you were really nervous to talk with your dad about his PTSD, and you did that in your film. Like, in your opinion, how has, like, PTSD and stuff changed your life? (laughs) You're not who you used to be. And just dealing with that fact. You know what was happening. Oh yeah, I knew what was happening, but like did you did you feel like you were affecting like me and mom? No, not really. Yeah. And if I did I didn't really care. Yeah. That's why, you know, we're divorced. Yeah. You know, it was took control of me. Had you talked with your dad much about how his PTSD affected you and your mom before you made this film? I I tried to Uh, on occasion and you know sometimes he would open up but it was always very brief and just kind of out of the blue and it was kind of an unspoken rule that we would not really bring it up you know we're trying to mend our relationship and I'm trying to you know learn to forgive him I was kind of trying to just avoid that area of conversation with him but that's one of my favorite moments in the entire film I think it's uh it was just a very, very special moment. And yeah, no, I, I really love my dad. It's a really powerful moment. How did making After War affect your relationship with your dad? Well, he's always been supportive. And, you know, obviously, like, he had no ill will towards me. Like, I did nothing wrong. And I think he realized that. And I was trying to forgive him. And he was trying to, you know, kind of be like, all right, are things normal yet? And making this film kind of removed that dark cloud that I mentioned earlier, you know, kind of looming over my family and our relationship. And making that film allowed us to talk about the unspoken thing. I basically put all my feelings out in the open with that film. And I think it helped my dad, you know, talk to me about it. At first, he was embarrassed about the film. You know, it's basically about the darkest and lowest point in his life. Anybody would be embarrassed if a film came out about that. But 
after about a month, two months, he saw how important the film was. He came to a screening and saw how people were reacting after the film. And he saw that this film is actually making a difference. And he, he was always very proud of me, but I think he kind of experienced the same thing I did. He saw that there was power in our story and we don't need to be ashamed about it. And what about your mom? How did she respond to seeing the film when you showed it to her? She was incredibly impressed. She loved it. Also for her, you know, kind of embarrassing. Like she keeps her drama at home, basically. But, you know, the same thing. She saw that the film was making a difference and and she won't rewatch it. And I don't think my dad would either. But they both, you know, eventually came to terms with it and saw how important the film was, especially in my life. I think they noticed a difference in my attitude about life because making this film allowed me to let it go. You know, it's really vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And that obviously took a lot of courage from all three of you. Thank you for sharing that, Bailey. And thank you for telling me about your film. Thank you. Thank you so much for this opportunity. That's Bailey Francisco. He won the Young Filmmaker Award in the 2021 Short Circuit Film Festival for his short documentary, After War. He made the film at the Colorado Springs-based Youth Documentary Academy. It's featured in tonight's premiere of Our Time, a new series on Rocky Mountain PBS. Thank you for joining us today and to the Colorado Matters team. Carl Bielek. Ali Butner, Anthony Cotton, Andrea Dukakis, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey, Ryan Warner, and I'm Avery Lil. We know it's not always possible to listen every day, so be sure to tune in Sunday mornings at 10 for the best of segments from the week. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.